Alright, so we're going to begin in Genesis 1. Um, in previous weeks, for the last month, on Sunday mornings, we've been going through the book of Acts and looking at uh, principles that we can pull out of the book of Acts for a church. Things that, whether on an individual level as Christians or as a, as a group or even universally, principles that we see God's people practicing. And so we got through... Um, we went through the first, what do we do, 10 or 11 chapters, I can't remember now. 10, 11 chapters of Acts pulling principles. And so I actually uh, want to go back to Genesis now that we did those first 10 or 11 chapters. Um, I'm going to hopefully do this maybe once a month. And I ha- have intent to just preach or teach through overviews of books of the Bible. And um, obviously I don't want it to just be like, here's a lot of information go process this later. Um, I'm going to focus, we're going to do an overview of the whole book, but I, there's a couple points in here that I'll focus on and kind of make some applications of as we move through the book. So just know that we're going to be moving through the book of Genesis fairly rapidly, um, so we're going to be flipping through there. So this morning, um, we're going to be doing Genesis, and obviously uh, we'll be starting in Genesis chapter 1. Most of you probably know generally what happens in the book of Genesis There's a lot of uh, well-known stories and things that we're to understand from this book. Uh, But the name Genesis literally means beginning, and so that's all the book of Genesis is, is the beginnings. We see various beginnings, and we're going to talk about some of those beginnings as we work through this book. But of course, the first beginning that has to happen in the book is the beginning of things. Things have to start. There was nothing, and then there was something, so we have to have an explanation of that. And certainly the explanation of that is we input God, right? God existed, He always is, and will be, and forever was. And so He decides to make something out of nothing. And the way that He goes about doing that is simply by speaking. He decides in His mind that He wants something a certain way, and He wants it to be in a certain place, and He speaks it into existence. Um, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, really, our information is given to us about this creation, this creating of things. Um, Really, we see him, God, being introduced in verse 1, in the beginning, God. Um, And then it begins by stating, he began creating. He created the heavens and the earth. But look at how he does that. In verse 3, let there be light. Simply, he speaks. Verse 6, let there be an expanse. Verse 9, let the waters Verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation. Verse 14, let there be lights. I mean, he just continues to speak, let these things exist, and they do so. And so on day one, there's light and dark. Day two, there's sky. Day three, there's land, seas, and vegetation. Day four, sun, moon, and stars. Five, sea creatures and air creatures. Day six, land creatures, insects, man. We see man created on the sixth day. And of course, on the seventh day, God rests from his speaking creation into existence. And so that is the beginning, as we might state it, is the primary genesis is when God creates something from nothing. And that's really the truest beginning. And so <laughs> I think it's kind of funny this morning we talk about Revelation and Bible class, and now we're going all the way to the other end of the spectrum and we're talking about the beginning. Um, so that is the beginning of things as we know them. Our understanding is limited to just what God reveals to us in Genesis 1 and 2. We might not understand about how everything was done, and we might not be able to wrap our brains around 
how God existed before there were things to exist in or around, but he did. And we have to trust that that it's so. But also look at, and I think it's equally important to the fact that God created, is that what he created was good. Um, Look in verse 4 of chapter 1 here. After God speaks these things into existence, he, you kind of get the sense that he examines what's come about. And it says that, and God saw that the light was good. Um, and God separated light from darkness. And so that actually happens every time he speaks something into creation. He kind of steps back, if we want to use that language, and looks at it and sees it's exactly like it was supposed to be. Um, and I think that's key as we move forward through the book of Genesis and really understand who we are as people as we look at Genesis, that what God creates, he creates by speaking, and it's always exactly as he intended it to be. And there's no fault or error in what he created to begin with. And so as we move through Genesis, we're going to see kind of the problems that arise once we break that mold. Um, And so let's look at verse uh, 7. Again, just another example of this. And God made the expanse and separated the waters... Uh, that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. It was exactly as he intended it to be. In verse 10, God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Again, intending it was exactly as he meant it to be, and it was good. And that, that pattern continues. You see it in verse 12, verse 18, verse 21, verse 25. And so God creates man, and we see the pattern continue, but it, it's a little bit different, and not in a negative way. But let's look at these, these verses. In verse 26, God speaks, let us make man, but he adds something to this, in our image. And so man is set apart and different from the other things of creation that he just spoke. We have this tidbit that in some ways, some capacities... Man is going to reflect or reveal God in some ways. And so it continues with his creation. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish in the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, and you shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So with man, uh, we see that God intends to create in a different way, a slightly better way, if we can say that, than he's created before. He creates in his own image. He sets out to do so, and he doesn't fail in this grander endeavor. He continues to succeed in what he sets out to do. It says, and it was so, but look at how he views it. In verse 31, he saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. So when we see him step back from everything that he's made over the course of these six days, with the inclusion of something after his own image, at that point is when he says, this is very good. 
Um, and so we see God is not only able to create, he never makes an error in his creation. Um, we see him as the perfect creator. There was no Edison attempt here where he tries it a thousand times and finally gets it right. Um, he gets it right on the first try. And so I think those are some important things if we want to kind of step back out of Genesis for a second. Moving forward in Genesis and we continue to see the rest of the story of God, the rest of the Bible that he's preserved for us is really how do we get back to and it was good. It's really a restoration of God's creation this is the rest of the story of the Bible. And so certainly Genesis 1 and 2 gives us insight into this creation just as Genesis 3 through 5 really tells us how things aren't good anymore, why they get broken. Um, so let's move on to Genesis chapter 3. Um, so God creates in chapter 2, uh, it moves backwards a little bit and goes back to day 6 and gives us in more detail what happened as he created man. He created man first, he created woman second from man as a helper to man. There was a couple things that they were told uh, in chapter 2. And to man, he said, he gave a couple of commandments. He told him to work the garden and to keep it in verse 15 of chapter 2. He said to be fruitful and multiply uh, to humankind in general in verse 28 of chapter 1. But then he also gave a negative command, not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2. So we have a couple positive commands and then we have a negative command. And we see that those commands also apply, be fruitful, multiply, and not to eat of the tree to the woman as well. And so moving into chapter 3, we see how things kind of become dismantled, how things are broken uh, by the, the breaking of what God has set up. And so in chapter 3, we're introduced to a new person in the form of an animal. Uh, we see in chapter 3, verse 1, that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So as far as we can understand through the story of the Bible that this serpent is the devil. He's come in this form of the snake. And uh, he chooses a crafty animal to come in. One that you might not suspect. One that seems uh, sneaky or however you want to view this. But... He tempts Eve. I mean, we see his introduction, and it's not a verse later. We see his work. Um, he gets right to it in verse 2. Did you actually say, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said of, to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And it's at this point that something God had created as good and proper had been violated. Um, and so we see really God approach them in the garden, and he doesn't come immediately striking them down. He comes asking questions, which I personally think is a curious way to come. If you're the Lord and somebody's broken your commandments, there's no one else that could have done it. Um, but he comes asking questions, and in chapter 3, we see several of the questions that he asks. 
The Lord God was walking in the cool of the day, in verse 8, and the man and his wife hid themselves, so they understood what they had done, from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man and said to him, Where are you? Which I think is a good question for us to consider. You know, God comes asking questions whenever we make create problems for ourselves and break his rules. And he says, where are you? And then he also says, after they answer, he says, who told you that you were naked? And to me, this is saying, you know, were you listening to me or are you listening to something else? And then we move on to the third question. Uh, Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Again, I think that's helping them identify kind of their problem here. And then he asks another question. What is this you have done? And I think this question perhaps shows they didn't quite understand what they had done, but I think that also shows they need to really think about what's happening here. This is bigger than just, oh, you broke one command. This is, there's going to be some big time ramifications for what's happening here. And that really presents to us kind of where we are. Um, in this, we can see God and how he handles sin, how he views it, we can really see the pattern that he's setting up through the rest of the story of the Bible and how he deals with man when man comes short of what he's asking. Um, he's going to come asking questions. He's going to come to help you evaluate your source. He's going to come to help you see uh, all the effects of what you've chosen to do. Are And ultimately, we see him curse man, curse woman, curse the ground, and curse the snake. And I think... He does this to show that sin affects everybody involved with it, everything involved with it, including the earth in this instance. And so, as we move forward through the book of Genesis, it's really a story of how do we get back to the garden? You know, God's going to start making promises, saying, I'm going to be with certain people, and I'm not going to be with other people. And really, it starts showing us a pattern of how God chooses to operate with man as he tries to weave this thread of salvation through the story of the Bible. Um, and so really chapter, uh, chapter 3 here all the way, well really chapter 3, perfect relationship with God is already broken. And so we have the rest of this, this Bible telling us about how God deals with that and kind of his plan to get us back there. Um, today we studied Revelation and really Revelation ends with a scene of being united with God again at this this marriage supper of the Lamb, this, this marriage of the bride to the Lamb, and things like that. And so we see this story kind of come full circle here. So as we move forward in Genesis, um, I want us to actually look at chapter 4 just for a second. Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. They're not allowed to be in the presence of the Lord anymore. They have uh, two sons, Cain and Abel. Now that sin has an opportunity to be in the earth and to be with man, and man has the opportunity to choose to break God's laws and his commandments, we see their children walking in their footsteps. We see Cain striking out against his brother Abel because he becomes jealous of him and ends up being the first murderer. The second generation of people bears the first murderer in all of history. And so, moving forward from the chapter 4, we see Cain is also cursed. And he's cast away again. And we see his descendants really become people of pride, people of sin. Um, all of ch- or Chapter 4, the end of that, really tells us that Cain's kids 
followed in his ways. He, they weren't very good themselves, um, which I th- think teaches us a lesson in and of itself that we need to give our children good heritages, good principles. Uh, but and then chapter 5, we really have chapter 5 to show us how Noah comes onto the scene. God introduces us to a man named Noah for a very specific reason because ever since chapter 3, the world's just in a downward spiral as far as godliness and moral integrity. And so chapter 6 is really God's decision of what to do with the earth. Remember, just, I mean, to us, it's just a couple chapters back. In actuality, it's probably a couple thousand years. But just a couple chapters back, God created... And every time he created, it was good. Well, here we are in chapter 6. If you want to look with me in chapter 6 here. uh, Let's read verses 5 through 7. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only on evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now look at verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. All right, so Noah kind of sticks out like a sore thumb in all these generations of people because he's the only one really mentioned in this time frame as having done that. He's the only one really mentioned as being righteous and blameless, faithful to God, walking with him. And so Noah stands out. And Noah's given an opportunity, in a way, to redeem mankind. And I don't mean that in the sense of he's able to personally buy back all of his generation and save them from the flood, though they have an opportunity to be saved. But really, he's an opportunity to start over. He's an opportunity to save mankind from just kind of ending right there. Um, And so God gives him this proposition. God presents him with the facts. I'm going to flood the earth. I'm going to destroy everything on it. And you have the option to listen to what I'm saying and build this boat that can withstand the waters that I'm going to bring. And so Noah, having been a righteous and blameless man in his generation, decides to take God up on his offer to build this ark. And so for years and years and years, he's building this ark, and God ends up sending the waters. And we know through Hebrews, uh, or 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, it says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He seemed to get this idea that while he's building this ark, he was teaching or reaching out to the people around him to give them opportunity to hear the word of God. But we ultimately know that nobody but Noah and his family end up being on the ark, save for the animals and things like that. And God washes away the iniquity of the world in a sense. He just floods it all and cleanses it out. In 2 Peter, we also see that the ark and the flood is a type of baptism. God, again, shows us that idea. Um, An application of that is sometimes I have... Well, I think this is right, but I have a one-sided view, is that baptism cleanses us of sin, and that's absolutely true, it does. God paints that picture all through the New Testament, especially very clearly. That's the point that we're able to be cleansed of our sins. But also, if we are to take what's given to us in 2 Peter, that um, 
baptism was also a means of deliverance. Um, and it was also a way of judgment on everyone else. Um, we see that through baptism of this water, through Noah going through this ark, not only was he saved, but it condemned everyone else. And so in the same way, baptism, we're to understand, not only does it save us, but those who are not able to go through what God calls us for, in a sense, are condemned. And so we see that type here. It's built into Genesis 6. So whenever you read Second Peter, think back on this story. All the way back in Genesis. So continuing on, Noah is made faithful, uh, or not made faithful, is faithful to the Lord in Genesis chapter 6 through this flood. And really the story of this flood carries on through chapter 9. We see them staying on the ark. We see them finally being able to get off. And immediately, and I think this is a lesson for us, immediately in chapter 9 when they get off of the ark, one of the first things that Noah does is he worships the Lord. Um, which to me says a whole lot about the victories that were given in God when he saves us. It's an appropriate thing, an expected thing for us to worship God for those moments. Um, and so we see Noah actually doing that. Um, anyway, so that's in chapter 8, verse 20, if you wanted to look at that passage about them worshiping. And this is the first instance that we have this kind of covenantal language given to us. Uh, we see God command some things. He says, you know, I've given you dominion, go into the earth, multiply, um, and spread out. But we never see a covenantal type language or word used until with Noah. And really, I think this sets a pattern for us and we can see God really becomes God of promises. And that's what everything's built on through the rest of the story of the Bible are these moments where God shows us promises and the rest of the Bible is in support of those promises. And so I think, look with me uh, here in chapter um, 6, verse 18 actually. We're going to move backwards just for a second. I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife, uh, your sons' wives with you. And he goes on to say, you know, you're going to bring all these other animals with you. Um, verse or Chapter 7, verse 1 says, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you're righteous before me in this generation. Um, and so again, he's saying, I'm going to preserve you through this ark. Well, then in chapter 8, chapter 8, verse 1, the very first thing that we see said, chapter 8, verse 1, But God remembered Noah, and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over all the earth, and the waters subsided. Really, the covenant or the promise that he gave to Noah caused the flood to end. I mean, it's, the language here seems to indicate this flood was going, it was going to keep going, until God remembered his covenant with Noah and made it stop. And so we really see right off the bat that God, when he makes covenants, he keeps them. And in fact, it can alter the course of things happening based on promises he's made. You know, naturally this flood might not have ended if the covenant hadn't been made. But since he made Noah a promise that it would, he stopped it. And so that really shows us right off the bat that God takes his promises seriously. Um, and he's faithful to those if we're willing to, to heed what he's saying. All right, so let's move on to 
chapter 12. We're going to move a little quickly, more quickly from here on out after we kind of lay the groundwork of Genesis. Chapter 12, we're introduced to another man, generations after Noah. Um, in fact, he's painted as being a descendant of Noah through his son Shem. And we see him in chapter 12, and I'm not really sure where this place is. I don't think anyone really knows where Ur of the Chaldees is. Um, but it's not close to where he ends up living. I think that's the point. Um, he's far, far away from what we might know as the land of Canaan, and God comes to him in chapter 12. And as Robin read to us today, he makes a proposition, a proposal of a promise. Um, look at it again, and there's a couple conditions in this. God says, Go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. So that's, that's the proposition. Go and do this, and I'm going to show you where you're going. Now here are the, here are the subsequent uh, effects of if you choose to do that. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So a really simple statement. Just go, and I'm going to show you where you're going. And if you do that, I'm going to make a promise to you that I'm going to do all these other things for you. So Abraham really has a decision to make, kind of like Noah. All right, am I going to take God up on this? And if so, he probably is wondering, where am I going? Um, but he chooses to go. And if we know the story of Abraham, we certainly see like Hebrews 11. He did it out of faith, just as Noah did it. Um, and he goes to this land. And I think it's interesting here in verse 6. Abram passed through the land to a place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there, again like Noah, an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country and he went on. So as he's passing through Canaan, specifically at Shechem, God appears to him and says, I'm going to give you this land. And so he doesn't waste any time, and he worships the Lord right there on the spot. Um, what pictures do you think Abraham and Noah, I mean mental pictures, had of God? What understanding do you think they had of all the operations of God and his plan over time? I don't think they really had anything other than these glimpses that we're seeing. Um, I don't have any reason to believe anything otherwise. So to me... God was what his word was. That's all they had. And so if God makes promises, who is God? Well, he's a God who promises things and delivers. Um, literally, God's law, the Ten Commandments in Hebrew is the Ten Words. And that's all they knew God by were his words. And so I think that's important as we look at Abraham is all he heard were words. And he chose to believe them or not to believe them. Um, and it's also interesting that Shechem is this place where we see um, the covenant renewed in Deuteronomy. We see Joshua die, or Joshua having the people go there to have the covenant and standing on the mountains at Shechem. I mean, Shechem ends up being a very significant place. But I think it stands for the place where God promised the land. And that's where they keep going back to. So anyway, moving forward, Abram travels for a while. He goes down through Egypt. Uh, a lot of crazy stories happen between him and his nephew Lot. He gets captured, he has to go save him, things like that. And all through these stories, I think the common thread for us to get out of this 
is God is blessing Abraham just like he said he would do if he went. He curses those who curse Abraham. He blesses those who bless Abraham. Abraham's able to be a blessing to other people, just as he said in chapter 12. Um, and so we see God delivering on his promises. And again, in chapter 15, he com- reaffirms the promises. And each time we see him reaffirm the promises, we see other shades of detail. And I think that goes to show us, even from Genesis, God reveals in steps. You know, as we warrant and as we grow in our faith, God gives us a little more and a little more and a little more. And I think that's kind of a lesson for us. Abraham only had a little bit to go on, and he chose to believe, and he went with God. And so God showed him a little more, and he showed him a little more. (laughs) And we see God working more and more through Abraham. And so uh, sometimes if you're like me, I get frustrated by not understanding everything all the time. Um, But we just have to look at people even way back in Genesis. God worked in stages, just a little bit at a time. Uh, So we see several things given to Abraham. Um, We saw in chapter 12 that he was given these initial promises. Um, We see in chapter 14 that he encounters this man named Melchizedek, who ends up being a significant shadow of Christ, a type of Christ. In Hebrews, really like chapters, you can make an argument for six, and like seven and eight and nine, um, that that illustration is given to us. And uh, God reaffirms his covenant in chapter 15 with Abram, and he elaborates on the promises in some ways we hadn't seen him do yet. So moving forward, uh, we see in chapter 17, Abram changes his name. And I think this is an interesting lesson for us. Abram had a name, uh, but it wasn't the name God wanted him to have. And so Abram turns into Abraham, right? Um, and Abraham, if I understand this correctly, after everything I've read, uh, just means like a father of many or a father of multitude. And to me what this says is when we follow God, um, like Abraham did in faith, and we do the things that God asks us, he changes our identity. And I think this is a shadow of what Christians have, right? He changes who we are, and in a way changes our name. Um, And so Abraham goes from just being Abram to being identified by the promises God had given him. You're going to be the father of many. And so I think that we too, Christians, we wear the name of the promise or the hope that has been given to us. And so we see a shadow of that in Abraham. And so he has this son named Isaac who ends up being the son of promise, the one that God had been promising to him. And then this crazy story happens where God says, you know that son I promised you, I want you to kill him. I want you to sacrifice him to me. And so we see Abraham, crazy enough, he actually decides to go through with it. Um, Hebrews tells us that he actually believed God would raise him from the dead. Um, And so Abraham goes and does this. God stops him at the last second. And again, I think what we learn from this is God expects not only us to pass these tests. um, In Genesis chapter, what is that, 18? Am I mistaken there? 22, that's where I am. I got behind my own outline. Chapter 22, uh, the very first verse says, after these things, God tested Abraham. So we see that God, even from the beginning, expects his people to go through tests, tests of faith. And ultimately, 
God responds to Abraham's faith by saving his son, not making him kill him. But we also learn that God provides a sacrifice. Um, Just as Isaac was going to be sacrificed, and when Abraham, after Isaac, asked, Dad, where's the sacrifice? Abraham's like, God will provide. We certainly see God do that. Um, He provides a ram that's horns are caught in the thicket. And certainly Isaac offers us a shadow of what God intends to do in Jesus. He intends to offer his only son, his son of promise, someone that he will provide. Um, And so certainly, again, we see that in in this text in Genesis 22. So really, uh, Genesis 12 through Genesis 25, 24, is about Abraham and kind of his dealings with God and his life. Genesis chapter 25, um, all the way through 36, I feel, is kind of the life and promises of Isaac and Jacob. So we see Abraham kind of being the father of these promises, the patriarch that initially receives the promises of God. Well, God told him, you're not going to see these in your life. These are going to be for your offspring. And so what does God do to keep his promises? Well, he reassures the offspring that the promises are still on their way. So he does that with Isaac and with Jacob, and certainly we see a lot of stories in there, a lot of crazy things. Again, (laughs) stories I don't understand all the ins and outs of, but again, we see a constant thread of faithfulness to God, God being with these people, God's word always being upheld, being fulfilled, um, just as we see like with uh, Jacob and Esau when they came out, some words were spoken that ended up being exactly true about Jacob surplanting or being above Esau as he came out clinging to his heel. Um, So, I actually want to go ahead and move us uh, to Genesis 37 through 50 for the sake of time. I have this huge outline on my uh, iPad here that's like five pages long, so we're going to like skip to the end. Uh, You're welcome, by the way, (laughs) because it's pretty dense stuff. Um, But just Genesis 37 through 50. So, there's a couple points that we're passing over that I just want to hit. God affirms his covenant with Isaac, the same covenant he made with Abraham. Um, He reveals again, maybe different shades of it. We see him do the same thing with Jacob. He reveals his covenant that he had given to his father and his grandfather. And we see different shades of it. We see, you know, in one instance he says, you're going to have so many descendants, they're innumerable, um, which Abraham hadn't known. And we're also going to see glimpses of God saying there's going to be kings coming from your lineage. Um, you're going to have these nations. Well, in Genesis 37, we really see the story of Joseph. And I think Joseph stands to us probably as one of the more clear Christ shadows in um, Genesis. And so I want to spend a little time, just maybe five minutes or so, with Joseph. So Joseph is the favored child. I don't know if any of us in this room were like the favorite child growing up. Um, I don't know if there's any hard feelings in this room because we weren't the favorite child. Um, so hopefully none of us really know what that's about. But he was the favorite child. And so um, his brothers didn't really care for him too much, not, and especially not when he came saying, I had dreams that said all you guys were going to bow down to me, which is basically what happens. God had revealed to him two different dreams um, with some weird imagery, but that basically boiled down to, I'm going to be exalted above my brothers. And so his brothers didn't take too kindly to that, and so they end up wanting to kill him. One brother speaks up and says, hey, let's not kill him, and they compromise and basically just sell him into slavery. 
I'm not sure which is better. I'm thinking the prospect of slavery for the rest of my life might be worse than being killed. But that's what ends up happening to Joseph. Well, we know, if you actually want to turn uh, to Genesis chapter 38. No, 39, sorry. 39. If you want to turn to Genesis chapter 39, we'll read the first few verses here. And I think this is indicative of all of Joseph's time in Egypt. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had, brought, uh, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down here. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house, and over all the time he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had, in his house and in the field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. All right. In a lot of ways, this is similar to promises God makes us as Christians. I mean, God promises to be with us wherever we go even when we go to places we don't want to be, um, like Egypt. I don't think Joseph had any plans of living in Egypt until he was forced to. Um, But God went with him there. And God caused him uh, to be really a light to the Egyptians in a lot of ways. I mean, it says that the guy that was over Joseph as owning him even recognized that the Lord was with him. Um, and I think that would have spoken not only to the success that is mentioned in Genesis 39, it would have spoken to the way Joseph lived, the things that Joseph said. We certainly see as the story picks up at the end of chapter 39, he lived differently than the Egyptians did. When um, a powerful Egyptian woman tried to sleep with Joseph, he didn't do it, which I think would have been vastly different than how a lot of people would react in that situation. So as we work through the story of Joseph, we just see these kinds of stories happening again and again. Joseph is exalted. God's with him. Joseph is in a really low place in prison. God's with him. We see him ascend back into power. God's with him. And I think he demonstrates a lot of the characteristics that we as Christians really need to demonstrate. Um, Towards the end of Genesis, if you want to turn with me to uh, Genesis chapter 42. God revealed to Joseph that there would be a time of famine and a time of plenty in the land. The time of plenty came first and it lasted for seven years. The time of famine came second, immediately after the time of plenty, and it also lasted for seven years. And so Joseph, under the direction of God, commands the people of Egypt to store up during the years of plenty. And so, of course, other nations during the time of famine realize, hey, Egypt's Egypt's got a lot of stuff, let's go buy goods from them. Lo and behold, Joseph's brothers come during this time of famine and need. And Joseph immediately somehow recognizes them, and they don't recognize him. And so, long story short, he ends up being able to not only save his family in a physical way, he's able to provide for their needs, even more so than they had anticipated receiving. He ends up having them come and live in Egypt. He has them live in the best land of Egypt, takes care of all of their families, I mean, they're going to end up living like royalty while Joseph's alive. Um, But he also mends his family in some ways that they didn't expect being mended. Um, 
Joseph's father uh, gets to have peace knowing his son's alive. And that's really what he says when, he's, when Joseph says, bring my father to Egypt. Um, his response is, it is enough for me to know that my son is alive. So we see that relationship is being mended there. We certainly see a lot of torn relationships amongst the brothers. They're redeemed in a way. Um, Joseph is able to have mercy on them. Instead of lashing out in anger, he forgives them, throws them a feast even. Um, and we certainly, or at least I'm personally amazed at Joseph's heart for his brothers, even after all this time to kind of like sit and stew and think like, oh, I can't wait to get them back someday. Um, he just weeps and is thankful that they're there. Um, and so, you know, you could probably think of your own ways and things that stick out to you about how this is like Jesus. I mean, Joseph is cast off by his brethren. He's taken uh, and made a slave and a prisoner. And then, um, he's in a foreign land in a way. Uh, we see redemption. We see a feast throne, forgiveness. We see all of these images and I think what makes these stories so amazing is not that so much that these things happened to me personally. It's amazing to think that a guy named Joseph lived and this happened to him and he did all these things and God was with him. But it's amazing to think that God would preserve this for us, not only to say, hey, these are amazing things, but to show us what he was going to do later. You know, and to help us see that these are the ways that God operates. You know, He lets us go through trouble and Joseph leaned on it. He lets us go through good times, and Joseph leaned on him. And we ultimately see that there's a redemption, there's a feast thrown, and there's a mending of relationships at the end of Genesis. And I think in a lot of ways, Genesis, kind of especially this last story of Joseph, is a microcosm of what God is going to show us through the rest of the Bible. And so that, that was kind of my overview of Genesis as we worked through it. Um, ultimately, Joseph at the very end of Genesis if you want to turn with me to chapter 50 I want us to just look at this and we'll be done chapter 50 I want to read verses 15 through 21 I kind of want this to be a takeaway for us as we walk away from this lesson um, this overview beginning in verse 15 of chapter 50 when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead they said it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of, your, of the servants of God, of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Um, to me, it's amazing that Joseph had this attitude, that he wasn't, I mean, he just wept when they heard that they thought that that would happen, um, that he would punish them after their dad was died. Uh, had died, and it broke his heart that they thought that way, um, that that was even kind of an expectation of theirs, or that they feared that. Um, but ultimately, to me, what this says is, says something about God. It says to me 
that God works when we don't see it. You know, it says that you meant evil for me, but God meant it for good so that I could save a bunch of people. Um, So sometimes for us, I think the lesson is God is always working for good. He's always doing the good things, the bigger picture things that we don't see. And even when it involves some of us, in a sense, being sold into slavery for a moment, um, if we can step back from it and be faithful to God through that, we'll see the big picture of how it was good. And also that God provides us opportunities to not only influence on a broad scale like Joseph did, save people, but he also was given opportunities to redeem people, which I think was the greater message there. Um, He was able to salvage relationships with his family. So anyway, that's what I wanted us to kind of look at through Genesis. I know we skimmed super fast, especially the middle part. Um, But those are some of the things that I see in Genesis. Maybe it gives you some different things to think about, just hearing somebody else talk about it. Um, Hopefully it was helpful for you. I know this wasn't particularly a lesson um, about, you know, Jesus explicitly or the salvation that he brings. But anyone in this room, if um, there's something going on in your life where uh, you know you're struggling... Um, spiritually, and you know you haven't really been like Joseph, you haven't really followed God uh, through the thick and the thin, uh, that's something that you can make known to you know me or Richard or Robin or somebody here, and we can help you out with that. Just do whatever we need to to kind of get you right with the Lord. Uh, we're going to sing a song now. Uh, what number was that again? 332. 332. All right. All to Jesus I surrender.